Amen. All right. Well, we're going to dismiss our kids to uh, children's program. You guys can go ahead and get up. Let's give them one more big round of applause. In preacher school, they told me that I need to come up with some hook, some attention getter, some way to earn your eyes and your ears for the next uh, 40 minutes. And so sometimes I share a little joke. Sometimes I tell a personal story. Today, what I'm going to tell you is, we're going to talk about the end times. <laughs> I hope you had that second cup of coffee this morning, and I hope you got a good night's sleep. Uh, because if not, you might feel like you're suddenly in a nightmare as we talk about the end of the world. <laughs> Preaching on the end times. I actually did put together a little intro, just in case that wasn't enough to get your attention. Um, but you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Uh, when I was... In the 90s, when I was in college, one of the most amazing movies up to that time came out starring Bruce Willis. It was called Armageddon. How many of you have seen the movie called Armageddon? There are a bunch of apocalyptic movies that came out in the late 90s. Special effects were improving, and so we were all sitting in the theater like, wow, this is amazing. You've got a picture Armageddon, Bruce Willis, uh, and, and the, the movie features Bruce Willis flying to a comet and saving the world, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I was a new Christian at the time, so I was also reading my Bible, and I was reading the book of Revelation, I was reading the book of Daniel, and I was reading about the end of the world, and that was interesting too. And what was, what was so fascinating is, uh, the way the movies were depicting it is not the way the Bible says it's going to happen, and frankly, if you read the Bible, uh, there's no way out. Like, it's going to end very badly. So I like the movie Armageddon, but it's just not true. Anyway... I went to, I was in the city of Baltimore. This, this is a whole other story, but I went to karate camp when I was in college, karate camp. So there I was in Baltimore, Maryland for karate camp. And we went downtown Baltimore one night and they were opening a planet Hollywood. And guess who was there? Bruce Willis. And he was on stage and I was like, wow, it's Bruce Willis. And then he got on the microphone and he started talking about his new movie Armageddon and his little interview. And he, and he said this, he said, yeah, you know, it's getting to the point where, we, given technology and science, we really don't need God anymore. And I was like, ooh! And I wanted to use some of my karate on that man <laughs> that I was learning at karate camp. Like, I felt like jumping up and being like, you're an actor! But your movie saved no one. Like, not a cat from a tree got saved because of your movie. You're a protect... I felt, you know, Toy Story, the movie where Woody has to tell Buzz, you're a toy. I felt like someone needed to jump on stage and be like, you're an actor. You have saved no one with your little movie. I love the movie, but I was actually outraged and indignant that a man would say humanity is capable of saving itself. As a new Christian, I was like, who do you think you are? I wanted to give him a Bible. Well, here I am now a preacher long after that, and I get to tell everybody about the end of the world and how we're really going to get out of this thing. And so that's where we're at. A few verses uh, that I want to share at the beginning inform us that we are living in the end times. So from the moment Christ rose again and went off to heaven, the Bible now calls this the last phase of salvation history. Every day you've lived has been in the end times. 1 Peter 4, 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
James 5.9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Revelation 22.20 says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The Bible also says that we are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come in 1 Corinthians. So that should create an urgency in your heart and a willingness to listen carefully, even if you don't perceive that the clock has expired and we're in extra time. The Bible says that's where we're at. So given the gravity of that, let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Father, thank you for revealing to us not only the past, not only giving us assurance for the present, but telling us the future in advance. We praise you for your word, and I'm just reminded as I read from Isaiah 45, which says this, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Praise you, Lord, that you have declared all of these things in advance, and you now invite us to understand them. Open our minds and our hearts to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so we are in the book of Romans. We are in the section of Romans that deals with God's sovereignty and his plan. To summarize where we've been so far, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a big, disheartening puzzle. His people have not accepted the Messiah. The Jewish people brought the Messiah into the world and then they, they rejected him. They killed him. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with this question. Did God's plan fail? Did God reject his people? Is God moving on? What, and Paul's trying to show us, no. God's sovereign plan is still moving forward. You can understand it and you can understand through it who God is. And best of all, you can understand your place in God's plan. So here we are in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And here's what it says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. All right, one thing that you should take away from this passage is, you can jot this down, number one in your notes. Be saved through faith in Christ. Be saved through faith in Christ. Right now, the Apostle Paul summarizes what's going on uh, by saying that he is welcoming the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people like you and me, into salvation. The word he uses is saved. The word he uses is mercy. 
So, fundamentally, your greatest need is to be saved, to be spiritually welcomed into God's people, to uh, be born again. And how does that happen? Through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Gentiles, it says here, are coming in or being saved, according to verse 26. The Jews are not coming in and are not being saved, which leaves you with a choice. Like the Gentiles portrayed here, are you going to receive Christ as Savior and Lord and come into God's people of faith, or are you going to stubbornly refuse uh, to enter into what God is doing? The Jews brought this tremendous blessing into the world, but then refused to enter God's spiritual kingdom. We now can enter because they're in a period of disobedience, but time is short. Time is short and limited. This is a limited time offer. Uh, jot this down. We are, uh, we are challenged to believe that Jesus is God's plan. There is a plan, and that plan is Jesus Christ. The reason the Jews were not being welcomed in is because they were stubbornly refusing to believe the gospel. The word here used is the gospel. They are enemies on the account of the gospel, it says here. What is the gospel? The gospel means good news. Good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He lived the perfect life and died on the cross for you. The full penalty of your sin was placed on him at the cross. And then he died and he was put in a tomb. He died as a substitute for you. Then he rose again in power. Therefore, your debt has been paid. Your death has been endured. One stood in your place. He was the substitute. And because he perfectly fulfilled all God's standards of righteousness, if you have your faith in him, you can enter into heaven forever. Not because of merit, not because you've earned it, and not because you deserved it, but because someone else paid your debt. Someone else opened the door to a kingdom he owns, and he's welcoming you into his grace. That's what it means to believe the gospel. Do you believe that Jesus is God's plan? Uh, I was, uh, I came across this picture earlier this week, and uh, there's emergency management uh, people all over the world are trying to prepare for disasters, right? And so they train, and they can go to certain places to train for a tornado coming through or for, you know, for, a, for an active shooter or whatever. They train for this. And so I found this video that, that describes this place called Disaster City, where people from all over the globe can come and get ready and plan for a disaster. Check it out. Disaster City. This 297-acre emergency response training facility on the west side of College Station is internationally known. It has 132 different props for instruction in firefighting, rescue, emergency medical services, hazardous materials, and emergency management. People know it, right? It's good to have a plan. It's good to have a plan. Maybe you're a planner. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're a dreamer. Whether you're a planner or a dreamer, do you have a plan to make it safely through this life into glory in the next life? Do you have a plan? Because the Bible says Jesus is the only plan that will work. If Jesus is your plan, you will pass safely through this world and enter the next world with God forever. If Jesus is not your plan, then a disaster is coming. And we'll talk about the disaster on earth soon, the apocalypse, but here's the thing. That is just a foreshadowing of an even worse disaster in the next life when you're put away from God's presence for eternity. Are you ready? Do you have a plan? I went to Bible school for four years to get my master's degree, and I can sum up in one sentence or two sentences what I learned there. The entire point of the Old Testament was to get the world ready for Christ to come. 
The entire point of the New Testament is to get the world ready for Christ to come again. It's as simple as that. If you feel like this book is one big mystery and I got lost in Leviticus somewhere and I stopped reading it, look, it's very simple. Christ is the plan. Therefore, jot this down, ask Jesus to take away your sins. He came into the world to take away your sins. It says here the deliverer will come from Zion. That's Jesus. Zion stands for Jerusalem or perhaps it's the Zion above coming from heaven. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That means that Jesus alone can get rid of ungodliness. The word Jacob there stands for all of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the patriarchs. And this will be my covenant with them. So you have God making a covenant with his people when I take away their sins. Only Jesus, the deliverer who comes, can take away sins. He's the only one qualified to do it. He'll do it for Israel. We'll get to that in a second. He's the only one who's doing it for Gentiles right now who believe in him. All right, Disaster City has no way to train people to clean up the chemical spill of sin that is corroding the world. They have no spiritual cleanup training plan. That's what Jesus is for. Only Christ can clean up the mess that sin made in your life. Therefore, jot this down, receive mercy from God. We learn here, by the way, that God is treating the Israelites, that God wants us to receive mercy. It says in verse 30, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So he wants you to receive mercy. Verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Why did God allow you to get so sinful? Why did God allow the people around you to get so sinful? He showed you your heart so that he might have mercy on you. Mercy means God not giving you what you deserve. You deserve judgment. God's willing to not give that to you. He's willing to not treat you like your sins have deserved. That's what mercy is. And have you said, have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me. Are you saved? You see, God's love to unfaithful Israel is meant to show us he's being patient with the wicked world. Wow, God's still going to keep his promises to them. Wow, he's going to still save them and forgive them. That's supposed to teach you that God's being patient with you and he wants to have mercy on you. He's willing that none should perish, but that all should reach eternal life. But there's a warning. His judgment is coming on Israel and it's going to be horrifying. And if the people who he loved and chose are going to get it, then you know that his judgment is inescapable. His judgment will fall on you as well. So note the kindness and severity of God. His judgment is coming, but his mercy is available. Choose life that you may live. Are you saved? Maybe today is the day you can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Now jot this down, number two. Trust that God's plan will prevail. Trust that God's plan will prevail. It says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. So we're not proud. We're not pompous. We're not like, I'm God's chosen. No, we're sinners saved by mercy. Don't be wise in your own sight. It says, I want you to understand this mystery, brother. So it takes some biblical understanding to get this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Here's what this means. Israel stands here for national Israel, the country, the people, the ethnic group. And they are partially hardened. So temporarily, they are disobedient. Temporarily, they are judged. Temporarily, they are pushed away from God's favor, but God's not done with them yet. 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which means there's a limit. There will be a certain number of people who are saved and then time's up. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So God is still going to keep his promises to the patriarchs and he will save the nation of Israel. That hasn't happened yet. It says here, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish uh, ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's reaching in the Old Testament here, and what he's doing is he's sharing how the Old Testament predicts that the Jewish people will be saved. Uh, and he talks about a covenant here, a covenant, and that is what's going to reveal that God is keeping his promises. So what do we see here? What we see here is Isaiah 59, 20, uh, Deuteronomy, or Isaiah 27, 9, uh, he quotes several Old Testament verses here that show that God made promises that he still intends to keep to national Israel. So we have to trust that God's plan will prevail. God hasn't thrown it in the trash can. He is keeping his promises. The covenant um, is very important. He's referring to the new covenant when God will take out a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That hasn't happened yet to national Israel. It remains to be fulfilled. But there is a promise to national Israel and therefore, God's plan is bound up in the nation of Israel. And as the nation of Israel receives the promises and judgments of God, so goes human history. And you might be wondering, what's the big deal with, his, with uh, Israel? Well, here's the story of Israel. God told Abraham to go. Follow me, and many nations will come from you. The guy was almost 100 years old when he finally had the child of promise. It was a miracle baby, Isaac. Uh, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, led to Joseph, and, and then Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. I'm showing you how the whole Bible ties together in one story. And then they, under Joshua, they entered Jericho in the promised land, and then there were the judges like Samson, and then kings like David. And so God established a people called Israel. He chose them to fulfill special purposes in the world. The Messiah would come through the Israelites. So if there was no Israel, there'd be no Messiah, none of us would go to heaven, right? So Jesus entered into the world, but then the Jewish people rejected him, threw him on a cross, and that threw them into a state of being cursed by God. They are, they are not fulfilling their purpose that God originally designed them to fulfill. But God had made promises to Abraham, and one of those promises is that after a time of discipline, God would regather his people, and then he would fulfill everything that he had promised to them. Now that happened partially before the time of Jesus. The Jewish people were scattered among the nations in judgment and after 70 years they were brought back in. But then after Rome conquered uh, Israel um, in AD 70, then they were again just thrown to the ends of the earth. The history of Israel is this. They were judged in AD 70, defeated and destroyed. In AD 130 they were kicked out of the land altogether. They were allowed to live there again but they were ruled by Gentiles. The Byzantines ruled them for 300 years. The Arabs ruled them for 400 years. Then the Crusaders ruled them for 200 years. And then the Muslims ruled them again for 200 years. Then the Turks ruled them for 400 more years, taking us into the 1900s. There was no national Israel. They had no centralized government. They were a scattered people. How they even survived is beyond uh, our understanding. In, in the um, 1800s, there were 5,000 Jews in Palestine, they estimate. Mark Twain visited in 1867. Here's what Mark Twain said he saw in Israel. Palestine has vanished from the earth. Inhabited by only birds of prey and skulking foxes, Palestine is desolate and unlovely. Late 1800s, nothing there. 
Nothing there. Now, how on earth are we going to reach the end times where there's a new temple built and the Antichrist enters the temple if there's nobody there? And Christians, by faith, believed that God would fulfill what he said in his word, but they didn't know how. By the year 1920, there were 75,000 Jews regathering in Palestine. The regathering, the regathering. And the regathering is one big, huge signal that God's plans are culminating. You can read about that in Jeremiah 30 and 31. The regathering of God's people in the Holy Land is a big sign that the end times biblical prophecy is going to come true. And then what happened? As the Jews were regathering, regathering, then World War II happened and Adolf Hitler killed 6 million Jews. Two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe wiped out. One-third homeless. You can see how Israel is in the center of history again, even in our day. The one-third that remained began telling themselves, we need a home. We need a home. The world began telling them they need a home. Sympathy was at an all-time high. They need a home. We need a home. They need a home. We need a home. They all went back to the Holy Land. But it was unlikely that they would get a home because Israel was owned by Great Britain and the Muslims were trying to get a claim and the UN was involved. How on earth would this happen? Finally, on May 14th, 1948, are you ready for this? The biggest Bible thing happened in the world in 1900 years. Israel declared independence. They became a nation like that. They were back. May 14, 1948, after being conquered in AD 70, Israel is back. And then one day later, they were attacked from all sides by five nations. And these nations said, this was a war of extermination. We will kill every Jew right now. Here's a picture of the invasion that happened. We'll throw that map up there. Attacked from every side. They were one day old as a country. And within eight months, they repelled the enemies and gained ground and shocked the world. And they were nuclear power. So in 1800, 5,000 Jews lived in the Holy Land. There was no such thing in Israel. And now in 2019, 9 million Jews live in Israel. They have nuclear missiles and they are governed on their own. Wow. Wow. The Bible says when you see leaves on the tree, I think I'm seeing leaves on the tree that big Bible things are happening. The stage is set for the end times to play out like never before. So trust God's plan will prevail begins by understanding that we're already seeing Israel regathering. There is an Israel and the end time stage is being set like never before. Uh, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. How does that happen if there's not even an Israel? Uh, right? So Israel is regathering. Jot this down. The world will defiantly self-destruct. Can fill that in. The world will defiantly self-destruct. As the end times progress, things are going to get very bad. Um, but it, it says here that in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Um, so that's quoting again from Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Isaiah 27, 9 also talking about um, uh, the new covenant spoken of in the book of Jeremiah. When will these be fulfilled? How will they be fulfilled? Well, he's talking about the end times here. When it comes to the end times, I'll show a picture here of the main events that happen in the future. First of all, Jesus died on the cross, which ushered in the church age. Then the seven-year tribulation is technically the end times. 
Um, now, some Christians believe that the church will be raptured out of the tribulation at the beginning. How many of you ever read the Left Behind books? Or you've, uh, yeah, or seen the movie with Kirk Cameron, right? And, and that's one reliable way to interpret the scripture, right? That the church will be taken out. We will meet him in the air. Um, but at the same time, many Christians believe that we will, the church will be here for the seven-year tribulation and we won't be raptured out until the end. Our elders don't even agree on this. We have different opinions. So what I will say to you is this. If God wants to take us as the church out at the beginning, I won't complain. But if he wants to leave us in until the end, I won't despair. All right? So that's my opinion. Um, but the seven-year tribulation is the end times. That's what we're talking about. Then at the end of that, Christ will return. And then we believe that there will be a literal thousand-year millennial reign of Christ here on this planet. Um, and then the final judgment comes. Finally, after Satan is released for a short time, uh, there is one last gathering of the wicked against the righteous, and then the earth and sky roll up like a scroll, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth created, and the eternal state begins. Those are the basic big things that are happening. I'm telling you the future. Isn't this crazy? But I believe based on God's word, we can rely on what he has revealed to us. Now let's focus in on that uh, seven-year tribulation period there. When it comes to what's going to happen, the world will defiantly self-destruct. The end times is directed at a few major purposes, but the main purpose of the end times is to convert the nation of Israel to Christ. Okay, you need to understand that. The main reason why all hell breaks loose on the earth is because God has determined to turn uh, wicked, unrepentant Israel to Christ. The only hope the world has of surviving the end times is if Israel turns to Christ and he returns. Uh, the world will defiantly self-destruct. So the, the tribulation will begin when the Israelites sign a covenant with the Antichrist and have fake peace for a little while. The Antichrist is spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 4, Daniel 7 to 9, in the book of Revelation. He's a false messiah. Many nations will trust and believe him, even Israel. He'll be a great political leader, a great military strategist. But under his rule, things will get worse than you could ever possibly imagine. The Antichrist, the false messiah, don't think of him as like, as like uh, you know, he's, he's not going to be like some wicked villain you've seen in a movie, right? Uh, he is going to be very charming, very persuasive, very strong, very popular. It's going to feel like humanity is finally going to make it. But then everything will go wrong and things will get worse than you could ever possibly imagine. How bad? It says in Matthew 24, 22, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Here's the point. Humanity at its height, after they've unified around their finest leader, will go through the worst possible imaginable calamity. Uh, this is the fullest expression of the Babel experiment. We will build our own civilization that rivals the kingdom of God. Uh, and it won't end well. It will not end well. Humanity will not be able to save itself. It would be so bad that the Bible says if God just stayed in heaven and watched humanity finish out our own story, everyone would die. All of us. So that's our plan, and it's a really bad plan. In the tribulation period, if you read the Bible statistics, and some of these can be symbolic or allegories, so we're not sure exactly if this is the way it's going to play out, but according to what the Bible records, uh, within a seven-year period... 
half of the global population will die. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of funerals. All creatures in the sea will die. Lakes, rivers will be poisoned, turned to blood. There will be terrible heat. Oceans will roar. Earthquakes will be felt around the globe. And the saints will be persecuted. Humanity has no hope of survival. That's the way it's going to end. And Israel will be right in the middle. Now, when you hear these things, you might be like, ooh, right? That's how I am. Ooh, ooh. And where's Bruce Willis, right? Uh, the Bible, though, whenever the end times comes up, if you read what Jesus wrote, here's how the Bible basically tells us to react. Calm down. If you see wars and rumors of wars and that, calm down. Don't let anyone tell you the end is here. Calm down. And then the Bible says, freak out. It's going to be worse than you could ever possibly imagine. And then the Bible says, calm down. In the end, you're going to be saved. So if you haven't calmed down, let me just say, calm down. Right? The end is not yet. If you haven't freaked out, let me just say, freak out. It's going to be really bad. And then if you haven't calmed down again, let me just say, calm down again. Because Christ has this all under control. Calm down, freak out, calm down. Trust that God's plan will prevail. The world will defiantly self-destruct and humanity has no hope of survival on our own. But the good news is there is a plan in heaven. The plan on earth will end very badly, but the plan in heaven will end very well. Jot this down. Israel will finally repent. Israel will finally repent. In Revelation 7, it records that 144,000 Jewish evangelists will travel the globe preaching the gospel. Isn't that amazing? They are going to finally own their original mission to be a kingdom of priests, to reach out with the light of Christ, their Messiah. They will do it. Michael Rydalnik uh, from Moody uh, Bible Institute in 2004 estimated that there were 250,000 Messianic Jews in the world today already. Again, before the year 1900, how on earth could these prophecies be fulfilled? Where are 144,000 Jewish Christians going to come from to, to travel the globe for Christ? Well, we're seeing it in our day. There are already at least 250,000 known Messianic Jews in the world. But national Israel will be slow to convert. They will accept the false hope of the Antichrist. They will be met with sudden calamity, natural disasters, total meltdown. Halfway through the tribulation period... The Antichrist will switch. He will turn on Israel. He will enter the temple. There's not a temple yet. There's plans to rebuild it. There's not a temple yet. He will enter the temple. He will desecrate it, proclaiming himself a god. Then there will be a giant war against Israel. Uh, the city will be overrun. Uh, the Bible, according to one place, records two-thirds of the Jews die. What will it take to finally convert national Israel? Uh, the end times. In Jeremiah 37, it says this, Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Jacob, again, stands for Israel. This is talking about the great day, the end times. In Zechariah 12.10, it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on, uh, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, do you remember what Jesus said to the Jews? Uh, he said, you will not see me again until you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the world is bound up right now in this curse on Israel, right? I'm not coming back until you call upon me as Messiah. Now that's going to get real 
when humanity is self-destructing and people are dying by the billions and Israel is still not doing it, still not saying it, still, and then, and then, and then it's going to get worse and worse and finally they will be broken and they will look up to the sky and they will say, you're the Messiah and we need you to come and save us. And get this, Israel calling upon their Messiah is the only way we get out of the end times alive. Jesus, jot this down, will return in glory and triumph. Jesus will return in glory and triumph. So Isaiah 59, 20 talks about the deliverer will come. Uh, and he talks about in verse 21 and in chapter 27, 9 and in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, that he will come and he will return and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he's summarizing here how all Israel will be saved. When Jesus returns in glory and triumph, national Israel will finally declare him the Messiah. They will be saved and their salvation will save the world from total destruction. Wow. That's a summary of how Israel takes center stage in the end times. The point for us is this. If Israel is going to be judged so severely and driven to the brink of ruin by sin, God will treat my sins the same way. He will not withhold his hand of judgment from my sins. Uh, and when we see the judgment on Israel, we should be afraid for our own judgment of our own sins. Yet, if God will save Israel and his mercy will still fall upon them, after all of that defiance, wow, if he'll save them, the people who killed the Messiah, then I have hope that he'll save me. And God's salvation of national Israel is a portrait that he will save us spiritually, even if we've defied him for thousands of years. Jesus will return in glory and triumph. So it says, as regards for the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What that means is, nationally, they were selected and singled out and called out to have God's special love upon them and to serve his purpose. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has called them and gifted them to serve this purpose, and he will fulfill his plan. Then it goes on to again say, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. What Israel missed is this. The way God is treating them nationally is the way he wanted to treat them spiritually. They were fine with the national blessing. They didn't want the spiritual blessing. Now, what do we take from all this? Number one, be saved through faith in Christ. Jesus is the plan. Number two, trust God's plan will prevail. He's already told us the end of the story. He comes back and he wins. And he receives his people out of literally hell on earth. So number three, we are therefore challenged to live for God's glory. Write that down. Based on everything we just read, we are challenged to live for God's glory. He goes on to say this in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Live for God's glory. 
The Apostle Paul was looking around and his people had killed the Messiah and he could have lost heart. But what did he say? He said, look, I see the plan coming to pass. I see God keeping his promises and I'm living for God's glory. What you and I learn is this. First of all, there is a God. There is a God. You and I have been taught in science class since really early on that there is nothing but time plus matter plus chance. Uh, the universe just came from nothing. It's going to nothing. And there, there's nothing that we came from and nothing that we're going to. That's false. There is a God. And there is a plan. And you can know his plan and you can embrace his plan. Based on the ending that you just heard about, it's already written. God wants you to understand that he is sovereignly in control of all of human history and Christ is in the middle. Therefore, Jesus is the plan. So these verses here are drawn from Isaiah 40, 13, where he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Um, God doesn't really look down into our uh, GPA and learn anything. I've never had a good idea that God was like, you know what, I'm going to go with Ryan on this one. <laughs> like, I was going to go this way, but now based on what Ryan thinks, I, I'm rethinking this one. So when we look into the plans and the riches and the wisdom of God, we should be like, wow, marvelous are his plans. Um, who has been his counselor? You know, God, what I really think you should do here, like, I just told you the future. All right, I'd be impressed if you told me what shirt I was going to wear tomorrow. Accurately. Like, if you came up to me tomorrow and you were like, look, I wrote this down yesterday. I called it. You're wearing that shirt. I'd be like, wow, that's kind of cool. If you told me how the world was going to end, I'd be like, wow, you must be God. And that's the point. God's telling us the future. The future. And then Job 41.11 is quoted, who has given him a gift that he might be repaid. In other words, we've never given anything to him. Right? I mean, your kids think it's, you think it's cute when your kids bring you a little kindergarten thing with cotton balls and little, you know, crayon color, and they give that to you, and you're like, oh, that's adorable, right? But really, have they ever given anything to you that is like paid the bills? Probably not. You know, and what have we given to God that isn't already his? We, he owes us nothing. He doesn't get any wisdom from us. He really doesn't get any benefit from us. He, he just has an amazing plan and we're not going to help him with this. We just are supposed to know who he is, know his plan, and join him in that. And then it says, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. This is now so settling for the heart. Jot this down. Trust his plan for your past. From him are all things. When you look to the past, from him are all things. When you look at your past, from him are all things. Your whole past came from God. The parts you love, the parts you hate. It doesn't mean that God is to blame for the damage that was done in your past. It means that he was sovereign over it every step of the way. And this is what's great news. He has a plan for your past. If you've never brought your past to God, you won't find peace anywhere else. You've got to pick it all up, bring it to him, drop it down and say, from God are all things. God, I'm giving you my past. Trust his plan for your past. If you bring your past to God, he was there. He knows it all. Fold it under his wise administration of the cosmos. God, based on how I see you ruling history, I'm going to bring my little puzzle piece to you. Be the Lord of my past. Be the redeemer of my past. Be the explainer of my past. From him are all things. 
What you've lived with will begin to make sense if you bring it to God. Your past was not senseless, your past was not random, and your past is not forgotten by God. Bring it to Him. If you haven't repented of it, repent of it. Fold your past under the wise administration of the one who rules the cosmos. From Him are all things. Then it says this, from Him and to Him or through Him are all things. So jot this down, trust His plan for your present. Through him are all things. The Bible is very clear that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. So, so right now, if God like sneezed wrong and took his hand off of the solar system, it would just all fall apart. He's holding it right now. He's the one responsible for keeping everything intact, and he's controlling the flow of human history right now. If you walk with Christ today, whatever life is throwing at you, you'll get where God is leading you. No turning back. No turning back. I don't know what you're dealing with right now. No turning back. I don't know what you're afraid of. No turning back. I don't know how hard your present is right now. No turning back. Look. Look. God's plans are right on schedule. Right on schedule. You can trust Him with your present. From Him... Through him, to him are all things. Jot this down. Trust his plan for your future. Trust his plan for your future. And I don't know what's giving you the most misery right now. Your past, I can't get past what that person said to me. Your present, oh, this is just, I can't deal with this anymore. Your future, oh, I know how this is going to end. I don't know which it is. Listen, from him, through him, to him are all things. You can trust him with your past. You can trust him with your present. You can trust him with your future. He's got the end of the story already written. Trust his plans for your future. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things... To him be glory forever. Amen. Wow. Be careful what you expect this world to give you. Okay, It's all going to be dust soon. All of it. Step back. See where humanity is driving itself and do not put your faith in man or chariots or horses. Step back and see where your sin is taking you. My goodness, if this is where Israel's sin took them, Where's my sin going to take me? If this is where the sin of the world drove it, it's on fire and everyone's dying, where will God drive my sin? And then see God's eternal plan of the ages and make that your plan. Make that your plan. Let me close by reading from Revelation 19.11. Here's the end. I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords.
Listen, you will see this with your own eyes soon. I have the honor of declaring it to you before it happens. The trumpet will sound. The end will come. The Lord will return. Is that your faith? Is that your faith? Because that's my faith. Is that your plan? Because that's my plan. Is that your hope? Because that's my hope. This is where it's all going. I want to give you a chance right now to respond to what you heard by giving God the glory that he has deserved for all time and calling upon his son Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, right now we respond to what we've heard, and we heard amazing things today. We heard the future unfolding, foretold thousands of years in advance. Who is like you, O God, revealing the end from the beginning? And Lord Jesus, we know you are the Alpha. You were before all things. In you all things hold together. And you are the Omega. You are, in the end, the only one standing to rule. Jesus, we just pray as the book of Revelation closes. Amen, Lord Jesus. Come. We believe you are the risen Lord. We believe you are the coming, returning King. And I pray for anyone here today who may be ready to receive you as their King, as their Lord, as their Savior. Maybe they're ready to pray this simple prayer that they heard today in your word. Maybe they're ready to say this. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Maybe they're ready to say that. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Mercy. Maybe they're ready to say this to you. Father, don't give me what my sins deserve. Don't. Don't give that to me. Give me what I don't deserve. Father, give me glory forever. Maybe right now all the planners and all those in the room who like to lay things out are realizing that our plans will, in the end, go up in flames. Maybe they're ready to say, Father, I make your plan mine. I give you my past. I give you my present. I give you my future. Jesus, you are Lord of all. Be my Lord. And we know, Lord, the confidence that comes when we hear about such horrifying things in the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear. When you see this happening, the Bible says, stand and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Give us that bold faith, Lord, that bold faith that will even survive Armageddon, that you will prepare a place for us and you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. We'll sing one more song together.